How might we improve student writing by leveraging our innate desire for social connection? Today in the podcast, I make a case for why you should consider including journalistic writing in your class. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. A young person that I'm close to, let's call her Annie, is really struggling in school right now, especially since the onset of this pandemic. When we talk about what she finds challenging and what her teachers might do to improve the situation, her response, I believe, reveals a larger systemic issue in schools today. She wants to be able to talk more with her friends. She's frustrated with the number of hours she's expected to sit still and stay focused. And she's deeply bored with assignments that just involve reading things and answering short questions about what she reads. Annie's not unique in the things that she's frustrated about in regards to school. She's asking for more collaborative social learning. She's naming the fact that the curriculum does not need to be limited to the four walls of her classroom. She's yearning for powerful, authentic learning that has a purpose beyond a grade. Annie is struggling and I don't think she needs to be. She is bright, capable, thoughtful, curious, and in many ways we are failing her. In this episode today, I make a case for why teachers, and not just English teachers, should consider using journalistic writing in their programs to transform writing, student engagement, and purpose in their classrooms. This is not a typical kind of show where I interview a guest about their work. Instead, today we dive into the research about writing, social discourses, and journalism. I offer some ideas for what teaching writing with journalism can look like in your classroom. And my intention is that after this episode, you keep this genre on your mind and consider working with it in a future unit or share this episode with a colleague and collaborate together on something in your own practice. All right, are we ready? Okay, let's dive in. Before we do any of this though, let's take a moment and pause to make sure we're all on the same page when I'm using the term journalistic writing. What is that? So when I say journalistic writing, I'm referring to nonfiction, factual, research, news article writing. The kind of writing that I focused on with my students are the kinds of pieces that you might find in the front section of a newspaper. They're written in third-person perspective, they use short paragraphs, they use direct quotes from interview sources, the facts included are from high-quality or verifiable sources, and they center around topics that are deemed newsworthy. These pieces of writing, they aim to include multiple valid perspectives on a topic, but we'll get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty on that one. And the writers who are crafting these pieces strive to be aware of their own identities and biases and how these may impact their writing. For me, this journey with journalistic writing started in 2017. I was coming back from my first maternity leave and I was inheriting a grade 8 English class. I had taught grade 7 English and social studies before having my first child. The teacher with this grade before me, this grade and subject combo, had taught a journalism project for many years, and I always admired and fangirled this project when I was witnessing it from afar. I just loved the authenticity, the challenge, the real-world connections, and this brand of nonfiction storytelling. So when I stepped into grade 8 English, 
If I'm going to be honest, this is what I was most excited about. However, the first year I did this journalism project, it bombed. Like, it bombed hard. I'll get into those early failings a little later, but part of those lessons that I had really shaped and formed how I understand powerful writing. Over the course of several years of slowly improving this project, I really became obsessed with the process of young people writing about topics that truly mattered to them. I just loved how it positioned young people to consider multiple viewpoints, including their own. For some students, actually realizing that their own perspective was just one of many was a bit of an aha moment. I also just loved how young people were engaging in interviews with real human beings who existed outside of the sphere of our classroom. And there was something really magical about publishing their work for others to read. I've seen firsthand how young people changed because of the things that they were writing about in this project. And I've experienced even the school community's shift because of their writing. And I've seen young people engage more fully with the writing process and in turn, improve their skills. Now that I'm doing this PhD and I'm engaging more with research about student writing, I see that there's actually a key ingredient present that hugely contributed to this writing experience. And that's that it's a social writing discourse. All right, so you might be wondering, what, what, what is that? Social writing discourse. And I didn't understand it at all when I first started reading about it. So I'll back this train up a little bit and introduce you to Roz Ivanich. Picture a friendly looking white woman with white hair, kind eyes, a cute blunt bob haircut. Roz is a scholar based out of the UK that's identified seven main ways or discourses that should be included in all writing curriculums. These include skills, creativity, process, genre, thinking, social practices, and socio-political discourses. Well, all of these discourses are important and worthy of me explaining them and unpacking them. For the purposes of this episode, only two, social practices and socio-political discourses, will get a little more explanation. So the social practices discourse says that all writing is a communal experience and that writing instruction cannot be removed from social contexts. The socio-political discourse takes us further by critically examining why genres and styles of writing exist the way they do. And it sees writing as a vehicle for constructing more powerful identities for marginalized people. Roz did not invent the idea of writing being a social practice. Rather, she's saying that how we teach writing cannot just be focused on the grammar, the skills discourse, or the metacognitive routines that students engage with. This is the process discourse. But that a well-balanced writing program includes many modes of writing instruction. This is likely not at all surprising to you, or to my friend Annie that I mentioned earlier. But what may be surprising is that the social practices discourse and socio-political discourse are both dramatically underrepresented throughout writing ministry curriculum documents in Canada. 
So it's no wonder Annie is struggling. Her teachers may not ever be pointed to including these ways of learning in their programs. And her teachers may never have been taught how to teach in a way that supports these discourses. All right, so back to my journalism unit. How is this a form of social writing discourse? Well, there's actually many aspects of this learning experience that tie it into a social writing practice. And of course, because I am who I am, I made an acronym for us to easily remember it. Do you remember in the book where the wild things are and the part where they have that epic dance party? Do you remember what it's called? Yes, the wild rumpus. So to remind us that social writing is kind of like that, a wild rumpus, journalistic writing is a social discourse because it is a rumpus. R stands for researching through interviews. U is for unpacking identities. M is for mentoring. P stands for publishing. U is for useful community collaboration. And finally, S is for strategic feedback. Let the wild rumpus start. are jumping right in with R, researching through interviews. The way that students researched about the topics that matter to them in my own class was not just by researching on the internet or reading books. To ignite that enthusiasm for learning, it really makes a huge difference when young people are researching topics that they choose and that matters to them. I found that in the research, this idea shows up again and again as something that makes the learning matter and important. You have to start with the interests and passions of the people in your room. In my own contexts, in different years, I'd sometimes given some broad parameters for how students could select their topics or identify the things that they were interested in. One year, I had students pick something that related to the city of Toronto somehow. We were engaged in this big year-long city investigation. And in another year, their topics had to somehow loosely be connected to the idea of sustainability, either social, environmental, or economic. With these broad parameters in place, students have some kind of container to figure out what they want to learn about, but they weren't so constricting that they couldn't find anything. When students care about their topics, finding sources to interview become a deeply authentic, slightly scary, and hugely motivating social aspect of the learning. Ideally, these interviews are conducted in real time, either in person, over the phone, or over something like Google Meet or Zoom, so that students get that real-time feedback when their questions don't make sense, or they're not getting enough detail from their sources, or they're not getting the kinds of quotes that they need, or it's clear that they're not talking to the right person. Social learning still takes place over email, I have to say, but in my experience, the the fear factor of sitting down and talking to your friend's mom about her small business is much more powerful than sending an email waiting for a reply. In the research, young people report that until they were required to interview people for a connected learning project, they had never even considered this a form of research. 
Even just the novelty of it alone should be a reason for us to include interviewing other people as an aspect of our writing projects. Okay, the next letter in the rumpus is U, unpacking biases. Something that arose in response to that first epic failure of my journalism unit was the need for students to understand their own biases and perspectives. If you've been paying attention to the world, you've likely noticed that there's an increasing distrust of the media today. Obviously, Trump has caused this in part, but this has been going on long before 2016. Traditional news reporting claims to be objective, but is it possible to choose stories, research, or write without being influenced by our backgrounds, our identities, and our biases? Probably not, I think. What if instead of trying to erase our biases, we were more aware of them as writers and we could consider them more carefully in our attempts at sharing the most accurate version or the most complete version of the truth? So something that I did that was echoed in the research was I had my students try to identify their personal beliefs about their topic. Then if their final article only captured these beliefs, it would be more clear that they may be missing perspectives that could have been included. Another teacher that I read about had her students take a stand to help identify biases prior to writing and research. So students were given a variety of controversial issues. They were all based on the things that students were researching and writing about, and they had to try to articulate what they personally believe about these issues. So for example, should the government be doing more to reduce carbon emissions? Should policing programs be defunded? Is enough being done to teach anti-racism in schools? Then at the end of the project, after they'd done the research, the writing, the publishing, students reflected on their views captured when they were asked to take a stand. And not surprisingly, their views had evolved and become increasingly nuanced as they researched more about these issues and heard from multiple perspectives. This, after all, is a huge reason why I think journalistic thinking is a valuable tool for young people. It expands the way we see the world and it encourages empathy. When we try to understand another's perspective, like actually try to understand somebody's perspective, whether by interviewing them or by hearing where they stand during a pre-writing practice, we are tapping into those social discourses and making the learning stronger. Nobody knows alone. Okay, rumpus, R-U-M is where we're now, and M stands for mentorship. The next idea that emerged from the research I'm a little obsessed with right now. This idea is so simple, so obvious that you're going to wonder why it isn't used more widely in writing classes. And it is this, reverse mentorship. Reverse mentorship is not undoing mentoring or being a bad influence on writing. Wouldn't that be special? This is a strategy that pairs recent journalism school graduates with classroom teachers to support the writing in the classroom. It's essentially a classroom teacher consulting with a budding journalist to help inform the writing the students are doing. The teacher knows the students, the classroom, the pedagogy. The recent journalism school grad knows the genre, the discourse community, and the process of writing. The teacher is, of course, mentoring the students, and the journalist is mentoring the students as well, but they're also mentoring the teacher. It has been a well-known dirty little secret in education that teachers do not feel capable of teaching writing to their students and that students are only writing about 25 minutes a day in all of their classes. Let's just take a moment and pause on that. 
25 minutes a day of writing. That is not enough. So as a profession, teachers of writing need more mentorship. They need more support and training. Reverse mentorship may be a way to do that, which is aligned with the social discourses model of writing. We learn through social relationships. So if a teacher and a journalist can collaborate together about student writing, the teacher's writing instruction in regards to this one genre can improve. The student writing can improve. And the journalists can establish more social connections with members of their community. It's a win for all. In my own practice, I experienced kind of a taste of this. I don't know if I would call it reverse mentorship, but rather just straight up mentorship as the people I work with were not younger than me. The first instance I had a parent of a student who worked in journalism in a fairly public facing way. When my first project did not work so well, we had a conversation and he provided some really helpful insights about what I could have considered differently. He pointed me specifically towards having students consider their own biases and how they might seek out perspectives that were outright different than their own to expand their understanding on an issue. The second time I experienced mentorship was with a close friend who works for a major national newspaper. He came to speak to my students about his profession, the practice of being a journalist, and while my students were sharing with him their topics, he instantly noted that they might not be actually newsworthy. Huh, great feedback right then and there. Since I'm not a journalist, working with people in the field who know the practice intimately helped me develop my understanding of the genre. Learning is social. Writing is social. Making mistakes is social. And we can only grow and get better in relationship with other people. And that brings us to the P in Rumpus, publishing. All writing has an audience, technically. But writing that is truly transformative shows that the author is aware of their audience and considers them at all stages. Research shows that writing in any genre is cultivated through many discrete practices, but especially participating in a discourse community and talking about the text I want to highlight here. This time of publishing is when students read each other's published work when parents read the class writing, when community members gain access to the articles. This is how young people fully participate in the discourse community of journalism. In many ways, this could be described as participating in democracy. Interestingly, and I found this fascinating, even in journalism schools with more mature writing students than the writers I was working with, the act of authentic publishing was not inherent in every assignment. Students, even when training to become professional journalists, are not engaging on their own with submitting their work to be published. These opportunities to publish had to be forced through the structures of the curriculum in journalism schools, or what are called J schools. So if older, more mature writers who are dedicating themselves to becoming writers who publish regularly are not publishing, of course students in grade eight are not gonna do this either on their own. So as teachers, we have to cultivate those opportunities to show students how publishing is a deeply social act and is part of the discourse community and therefore an incredibly effective way to motivate us towards our best work. Something that I learned the hard way with that early failure was that not all writing was ready to be published. 
In the first iteration of the project, I thought that all student writing should just automatically get featured in our class newspaper. But some students' writing was not exactly meeting the expectations. Maybe you've experienced this in your own practice. In future versions of this project, I made publishing the writing a reason for young people to work towards the success criteria of the assignment. Some students were ready for the publishing and others needed more time to get there. I think this is okay. I like the idea of different stages of publishing, perhaps a class newspaper that parents and stakeholders in the community can have access to is one option at one stage. Maybe some really strong pieces of writing can be added to the school newspaper if one exists. Or if some pieces that need more time to be worked on, they could be added to an online publication later in the year. All students can benefit from the experience of publishing, and yet it doesn't need to be done at the same time. Okay, moving forward in our RUMPUS acronym, we're coming to the second U, which is Useful Community Collaboration. I want to circle back to this point about distrust of the media that I mentioned earlier. This has been a topic written about at length in the academic research about teaching journalism. While I'm not trying to train professional journalists, I'm working with grade eight students, I think the conversation in the world of J-Schools are worth looking at in terms of what they might give teachers hints about how to consider teaching our younger writers. There's been a recent push in the Journalism Academy for more community-based and collaborative journalism. Community-based journalism is trying to address the issue of how the media perpetuates institutional racism and traditionally does not do a very good job of including the voices of marginalized people. When reporters are connected to communities, for example, through volunteering in organizations to form relationships, or when reporters are actually telling stories about communities that they have access to, greater trust can be formed and more accurate stories can be shared with the broader public. Collaborative journalism asks key stakeholders in communities what stories they want to be covered and works together to identify credible, often non-elite sources on these stories. What if something similar could be put into practice on the elementary or high school level? Young people could spend several weeks volunteering at various local community organizations, getting to know the staff, the purpose, and the communities they serve. Then they could interview various stakeholders and craft news stories about their work to publish and share with the wider school community. Or what might be possible if students sat down with various groups of people connected with their school, for example, younger students, parents, staff members, administration, lunchroom supervisors, volunteers, and truly understood what potential stories existed and who they might talk to to research these stories. Of course, of course, I am imagining a version of school that could involve field visits and connecting with other people outside of cohorts. Call me hopeful for a version of schooling that isn't as restricted due to this ongoing pandemic. That said, leveraging social situations to guide students towards a kind of writing is not actually a new thing. One thinker, Mary Chapman, has written about this, and she believes that genres of writing arise to fulfill a specific social purpose. Genres are not, you know, these concrete structures or forms that students need to master, 
but rather they're flexible models that arise to address a social need. In this case, the social need is to dismantle institutional racism and tell the stories that people in communities want to read about. All right, and with that, we're coming to the S in rumpus, which is structured feedback. Another deeply social aspect of any writing is when feedback is offered. I get that writing typically receives feedback before publication, but not always. Sometimes the most meaningful feedback happens after the grade is given, the drafts are sent in, and there really isn't any space to change anything. Also, to be honest, for the purpose of the RUMPUS acronym, strategic feedback needed to go at the end. But in the life of the classroom, feedback may be happening at any time, really. Providing feedback is a key recommendation from the scholarly research about best practices in writing instruction. And that probably isn't a huge shocker to anyone listening to this. Feedback from teachers their journalistic mentors, fellow students, and from themselves are all required to move students forward in their writing skills. Peter Elbow, one of the pioneers of free writing, has some things to say about writing feedback. In his 1998 text, Writing with Power, Elbow delineates two kinds of writing feedback, criterion and reader-based feedback, both of which are really important to include in how students get insights about their craft. Criterion-based feedback judges the writing against a rubric, a set of success criteria, or a checklist. And reader-based feedback says what the writing does to the reader. Elbow also suggests to teachers that reader-based feedback is easier to give. So with this writing experience of journalism in small, ideally trusting groups, students can share with each other their experiences when reading drafts of each other's writing. When teachers or the journalist mentor are reviewing early drafts of the writing, working from co-constructed criteria gives a different kind of feedback on the writing, which ideally rounds out reader-based feedback from the peers. This might also look like a structured protocol in a reader response group modeled with a small group for the whole class to watch before trying it out independently. Learning about how our writing impacts other people through structured feedback is typically the aspect of social writing practices that most teachers include in their writing programs. So likely none of these ideas are a surprise to you. But how you consider reader-based criterion or protocol feedback may heighten and strengthen the inherently social aspects of this practice. So when you're trying to remember what makes journalistic writing so valuable and important, pull up in your head the memory of all those wild things living their best life or having that wild rumpus. Researching through interviews, unpacking identities, mentoring, publishing, useful community collaboration, and strategic feedback. Rumpus. We're now going to do something totally new on the podcast that I'm really excited about. We're going to take some listener calls, and we're going to start with Peter. Hi, Celeste. My name is Peter, and I'm calling from Kitchener, Ontario. I'm a grade 9 and 10 English teacher, and I actually really hated English classes when I was a student. I got into teaching because of my passion for teaching drama, but the school that I'm at right now has me only teaching English. I struggle as a writer myself, and I've always feel like I'm just recreating the boring assignments that my teachers made for me but I don't really have any other strategies in my toolkit. I'm also just more tired than ever, and I find it really hard to push myself to get better as a writing teacher. So what suggestions do you have? Thanks. I so feel you, Peter. And I want to just start by saying that you are not alone in this. 
I mentioned earlier that uh, the research points to the fact that teachers do not feel prepared by their teacher education programs to teach writing. So, you know, even if you did have an English undergrad, I wouldn't be surprised if you also felt similar things. Something else that is clear in the research about top evidence-based recommendations that improve writing is that we need to have supportive writing communities to help us as writers. Writing is a social practice after all. I hope we're all starting to feel that after listening to this episode. You know, one of the most powerful writing experiences I've ever had as a teacher was when I got to participate in the week-long Institute for Writing and Thinking with Bard College. This is where teachers are guided through various writing practices so that we can actually facilitate these with our students in the classroom. You know, even though I actually enjoy writing, I also have a drama undergrad, and I've always kind of worried that I didn't know enough about how to teach writing because I didn't have the same writing experiences as my friends with English majors who became teachers. So, Peter, if you can find a way to participate in a BARD program, I highly recommend this. If that's not possible, I'd also point you towards the Toronto Writing Project. You know, I know you're in Kitchener, but there's a lot of stuff happening online and over Zoom. They have regular teacher writing workshops. They're all free and, again, over Zoom, which is one of the best things to come out of the pandemic. You know, these uh, groups that normally would only have people visit them or participate that are in the same geographic area can now have so many more participants. And the Toronto Writing Project, they focus on poetry writing, but regardless of the kinds of writing that you're doing with your students, finding a community of writers to surround yourself with is just a key way to feel more confident and become more capable as a writer and as a teacher of writing. You know, and this is true for our students that we need to be surrounded by supportive thoughtful fellow writers and it's true for us as adults and as teachers of writing. Thanks for calling Peter. Hi my name is Quinn. I'm an instructional coach in Toronto. A few of the teachers I work with have crafted these like rich interesting and engaging projects for students to learn through but I see a real need and desire for students to make an impact on the world. With more young people getting involved with climate justice, for instance, like I feel like there's a perfect opportunity for something deeper here. Do you know what other teachers are doing to marry social justice with writing standards? This is an awesome question, Quinn. I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I'm going to use the example of journalism as that's what I've been focusing on a lot with this episode, but obviously there's so many other genres that you can explore for social justice. So... When students are writing in this genre of journalistic writing, they're aiming to share the facts in a balanced and unbiased way, or at least in a way that accounts for their biases and includes diverse perspectives. But once students have learned more deeply about an issue that they care about, I think the natural extension is to consider what they might do to design other possible realities. There's a lot written in the world of critical literacy that gives us some ideas of what this could look like. If you want to read more, I would highly recommend checking out the writing of Hilary Yanks or Vivian Vasquez, and I'll put some uh, resources in the show notes so you can find them pretty easily. Just imagine, so after you know students write these news articles and they've been published in a newspaper, students could be invited to choose another genre or a mode of creation to leverage this heightened awareness that they've gained. Students could write, 
for example, a letter to petition someone in a position of authority to make policy change or create a uh, public service announcement, a PSA video for their school social media account to educate about an important issue. Or maybe they would design a new space in their school community to address an unmet need for their students. Maybe it's a garden or a quiet corner or a snack bar or a positive affirmation mirror, you know, like whatever. They could maybe even write a story that reimagines a more desirable future in regards to a complex social issue. We often think that publishing is the final stage of the writing process, but I think actually the final stage is doing something with the knowledge that we've gained taking the writing and then reimagining it to create a difference. The journalistic writing could be a vehicle for researching, for learning about the multiple perspectives and stakeholders on an issue. And then the next project after could be requiring students to apply their newfound learning to make a change in their communities. You can probably tell that I'm kind of excited about this. So if you end up running with this, I hope you'll loop back and share your learning with us, Quinn. Thank you so much for calling in with this question. Um, and I really do hope to hear back from you. Hey, Celeste and the Teaching Tomorrow community. My name is Julia and I'm calling in from Kingston. Uh, I teach middle school, I teach English and social studies, and I'm just calling about a dilemma I'm having in my practice right now. Uh, I have my students write various things across the curriculum and they get feedback from me and from their peers. But what I'm stuck in is how I can teach my students various writing techniques. So by the time I see them in seventh grade, they know basic skills, they're comfortable with the thinking process of writing, but at times there are just elements of writing that need to get taught and practiced. Do you have any ideas how to include direct instruction in a way that just isn't soul sucking and boring that seventh graders are gonna enjoy? Thank you so much for your help. Hi, Julia. Oh, I so get this. Uh, and in the spirit of leveraging student social learning, I think we can actually use this to help with those moments that we need to teach specific writing strategies. You know, whenever I've used supportive writing groups throughout my class, I'm always really grateful for that early in the year community building work that sets the foundation for students working and learning together. And something that the research on evidence-based top recommendations for teaching writing, what that research suggests is that to have students compose together. And a perfect idea for supporting students to learn socially is to do this kind of collaborative writing thing in your class. So, you know, you might teach a mini lesson, say on, you know, paragraphing. And I mean mini, I like think like 10 minutes or less. And then students in small groups of three or four people can compose something together that applies these new skills. I'm picturing students using like big chart paper or different markers for each student. Students composing together is a really good example of a gradual release of responsibility. And it's actually fun for students to work through new skills when learning from and with their peers. So, you know, keep those direct lessons very short, you know, under 10 minutes, and then let students practice those skills collaboratively in small groups that have been set up, uh, you know, well in advance of those lessons. Let me know how it goes, Julia, and uh, keep me in the loop if you try it in your practice. Thanks for calling. Thank you everybody for calling in and sharing your questions about your teaching practice. I always love hearing from you. So if you have a question or a dilemma that you want some research perspective on, not just about journalistic writing, about anything, send a voice memo to celeste.kirsch at gmail.com. 
hit me up on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow or find me on Twitter at teach underscore tomorrow. Before we close off, I, I wanna come back to my friend, Annie. We all know students like Annie, bright, capable, thoughtful, full of potential. And they keep us up at night because we know something is not quite right about the systems of schooling for them. And as a result, they're not thriving. The bigger system of schooling is not going to change itself. This is up to us. The Ministry of Education Language Arts documents in Ontario have not been updated since 2006. 2006! You know, maybe if they did, there would be more included about the social practices and socio-political aspects of writing. And students like Annie would find themselves more easily in our programs. But maybe not. It's up to us teachers with whatever power we have to tweak, to challenge, to redesign and reimagine our programs to be more socially oriented, to better meet the needs of all of our students. And I hope for Annie's sake that we can. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep writing inside that wild rumpus and remember we are teaching tomorrow.